Good morning, everyone. I love that song. It reminds us that we grow, we change by the scriptures, or more accurately, by the Spirit of God applying his scriptures in our lives, making us increasingly new creatures. Uh, speaking of the scriptures, you can go ahead and stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. We will be reading to prompt our hearts this morning in Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Psalm 8, a psalm of David. O Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. To the choir master, according to Muth Leben. Let us pray. God, your name is great and awesome. You are majestic above all. And we see that in creation. You are evident in creation. Even to those who refuse you, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, you are known. You are clear that it is from you that everything is. And Lord, you've tasked man with an amazing task, one that we failed in, but now that one that we can succeed in because of your Son, Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man. Lord, we want to see how you are working this morning in, in history, what you're doing in all of history for your great name. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law, and that you might teach us, show us how you are acting in the world. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for what you've contained in them. Bless this time this morning. Give me clarity. Help me to be useful to these folks, and I pray that for all of us, that we would learn, that we would grow, and that you would be honored. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are planning on starting a series in Matthew soon. I keep saying that. We will do it, I promise. Um, but I want to set the stage of Matthew for you and we're heading that direction, um, but you see, Matthew's purpose, I'll give you a sneak preview, Matthew's purpose in his gospel is this, is proving that Jesus is king, 
And then he's also, Matthew, what he's doing in his gospel is giving instruction about Jesus' kingdom. And then he's also giving instruction of how to follow the king. He's proving that Jesus is king. He's explaining what the kingdom of Jesus is. And then he's also giving instruction of how to follow the king. But that raises a question, doesn't it? What is the kingdom? We throw that language around quite a bit. Uh, well, we're doing this for the kingdom. We're doing kingdom work, or it's for the kingdom. But what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? You see, we, we do this with a lot of terms in the Christian life. We throw out the language so often, but we don't actually pause to think, what does it actually mean? And so what I want to do for you in the next three weeks is I want to give you some backdrop to Matthew that's essential to understanding what Matthew is going to be talking about with regards to the kingdom. It's the gospel of the kingdom is really the gospel of Matthew. So what is the kingdom? So the way we're going to approach that is we're going to do a overview of the storyline of Scripture, the whole Bible, because the storyline of the Bible is the storyline of the kingdom. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, the main plot line, the main plot line for the whole Bible is God's kingdom. I don't know if you've ever thought about trying to wrap your, your, uh, your whole uh, mind around the whole storyline of Scripture. Maybe you've never thought of Scripture that way. Maybe you think of it, uh, the Scripture as more of an encyclopedia, right, of, of good things to say and a lot of helpful advice. But that's not actually how the Scripture is written. Scripture is written as an epic story, an epic story that shows the majesty of a great and awesome God. And the main plot line is the kingdom. I've put it this way in your notes. I've thought a lot about this, and this is how I would try to capture the whole storyline of Scripture. You can tell already I like long sentences, um, but when I have them, I try to put them in the bulletin to, to, so you can track with me. Here's how I would describe the big idea of the Bible or the storyline of Scripture. Where is God going? The triune God, Yahweh, establishes his kingdom over the whole world through his chosen king, in his covenants with humanity, by subjugating his enemies through redemptive grace or eternal wrath for the purpose of his creation, glorifying him for all eternity. It's a mouthful, but let me walk through it. The triune God, Yahweh, the God who has always been, who has always existed, created, and he is working in establishing his kingdom in the world. And you might say, well, wait a minute, God is king overall. That's uncontested. That is absolutely true. There has never been a day where it was ever in doubt where God is on the throne. And yet the kingdom we're talking about here is, 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 is a nuance of that. It's a stewardship kingdom. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. But he establishes that kingdom over the whole world through his chosen king. First Adam, and then ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his chosen king, through the Messiah. The Messiah just means chosen one, and it was often applied to the king. Through his chosen king, God is establishing this kingdom. How is he doing it? Well, he's doing it in his covenants with humanity. We'll talk about the covenants more in a second, but I don't know if you've ever thought about the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the new covenant, the Davidic covenant, 
the Noahic covenant, right? All these covenants that are in Scripture, and you might, if you were anything like me growing up, even in a good church, you've heard about the covenants, but maybe you don't understand that they are the key, uh, the key th- the movements in Scripture through which God establishes his kingdom. Another way to say this is this is how God puts together the Bible. If the main plot line is the kingdom and God establishing his kingdom, how does he do it? He does it through these covenants that he has given to humanity. And understanding that revolutionizes revolutionizes your understanding of Scripture and also your own Christian walk. And as he establishes that kingdom and his covenants, he's subjugating his enemies. You see, we're all enemies. We are all rebels. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We are all enemies of the king, but God subjugates his enemies one of two ways, either through redemptive grace, through redemptive grace. God subjugates his enemies in kindness. You think about that. Or in eternal wrath. For what purpose? Why is God doing all of this? God does everything he does for this, for the purpose of his creation, glorifying him for all eternity. That is what God is doing. God is establishing a kingdom in the world through his covenants. Why is he doing it? He's doing it for all things to bring honor and glory to him, to display his honor and glory. That's the big idea of the scriptures. And I want to walk you through that because what Matt, where Matthew stands in the scriptures, he picks up, he integrates in with this storyline in a very key way. So as we go through this study together, here are my goals. I want you to understand. First thing I want you to be able to do, I want you to understand the storyline framework of the whole Bible. I want you to see the forest. I want you to see the forest and the contours of the forest so that you understand how to read and understand your Bible better. And as you do that, we never are people who just, we need knowledge, but not knowledge for knowledge's sake. Why do we want that knowledge? To stand in awe, to stand in awe of the God who is accomplishing his narrative, his story through history. And then once we understand and stand in awe of the God who is moving his story forward in history, then we live our life. We ought to live our life in light of where God is going in history. If you understand the big picture, if you understand where God is going, then you need to get on the right side of history. Maybe that's in repentance. Maybe you've never truly followed the king, right? And so you need to repent and uh, come under his rule. Or maybe it's just a fresh sight. And that we think about that kingdom and what God is doing in the world. We live in light. It gives meaning and purpose and understanding to what we do on a day-to-day life as Christians. So that's where we're going in these next few weeks. Uh, the summary way we can describe this is kingdom through covenant. God is establishing his kingdom through his covenants. I borrowed that from a title of a book, so if you see it, don't, don't uh, you know where it came from. What is a covenant? Let's start there. Before we get into uh, how is God starting this kingdom in the world, I mentioned this term covenant, and maybe you're not familiar with the term covenants. Well, I'll give you a definition of a covenant, and then I will give you an example of a covenant to explain the idea. A covenant is a solemn commitment to a particular relationship, guaranteeing promises or obligations 
undertaken by one or both parties, sealed with an implicit or explicit oath. Now, that's a mouthful. I'll say it one more time, and then I'll explain it and break it down. A covenant is a solemn commitment to a particular relationship, guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both parties, sealed with an implicit or explicit oath. Now, let me explain that using a picture. You know of a covenant relationship, one that we see in day-to-day life, and that's the covenant relationship of marriage. Marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship. It is a solemn commitment to a particular relationship. Now, that relationship started prior to the covenant, didn't it? Uh, Hopefully you dated your wife or you dated your husband a little bit before getting married, got to know them, and realized that uh, we want to take this to the solemn commitment of that particular relationship in marriage. It it doesn't end the relationship, it amplifies it, and it, it makes it solemn and gives new dimensions to that relationship. And then when you took those vows of marriage, if you're married here this morning, you it was with guaranteeing promises, obligations that you undertake on part of the, each part of that party to each other, to love, to respect, to cherish. And really, your wedding vows, that was an oath, wasn't it? It was an oath before God. It was an oath before witnesses that you would keep this covenant. A covenant in Scripture and the covenant of marriage, they often come with a sign, right? The, the, the idea of a sign of a covenant is you look at this sign and it reminds you of that covenant relationship. In the Western culture and marriage, we have the wedding ring, right? So when I look at my wedding ring, I'm, not, I'm, I'm supposed to be reminded not only of my wife, but the relationship I have with my wife and the solemn commitments I have made to her. Same thing in Scripture. The covenants have signs. As far as the Bible is concerned, loyalty in keeping the covenant is described by the words you've seen many, many times, especially in the Old Testament, faithfulness and steadfast love. Or the NASB has it, loving kindness. The idea is loyal love, covenant-keeping love. That's a covenant. Which covenants are we talking about? Well, I put them there in your bulletin for you. Uh, And the thing about these covenants, it's not just that they're these separate little things, uh, completely unrelated to one another. No, far from it. They are. They build off of one another. They connect with one another. They they form uh, steps. That's why I've given that ladder uh, analogy there. Right? They form steps in where God is carrying His program of building His kingdom in the world. That program starts at creation. With the Adamic covenant, it moves through the Noahic covenant. It builds in the Abrahamic covenant, then to the Mosaic or Old Covenant, through the Davidic covenant, to the New Covenant, where? To new creation. So we move, the whole storyline of Scripture moves from creation to new creation. That's where everything's going. And if you're not convinced of that, let me, let me give you some examples of this. It's very instructive, if you've never done this before, to read Genesis 1 through 3, and then to read Gen- uh, Revelation 20 through 22, the bookends of the storyline. And I'm going to hit you with some of these just to give you the mindset that I'm not making this up. This is what, how Scripture structures itself. 
Genesis 1 through 3, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 20 through 22, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Genesis 1 through 3, the darkness he called night. Revelation 20 through 22, there shall be no night there. Genesis 1 through 3, God made two great lights, sun and moon. Revelation 20 through 22, the city had no need of the sun or the moon. Genesis 1 through 3, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Revelation 20 through 22, there shall be no more death. Genesis 1 through 3, Satan appears as a deceiver of mankind. Revelation 20 through 22, Satan disappears forever. Genesis 1 through 3 is shown as a garden in which defilement entered. Revelation 20 through 22 is shown as a city in which defilement will never enter. Genesis 1 through 3 illustrates a walk with God with man that was interrupted. Revelation 20 through 22 is a walk with God with man resumed. Genesis 1 through 3, there's initial triumph of the serpent. Revelation 20 through 22, there's ultimate triumph through the Lamb of God. Genesis 1 through 3, I will greatly multiply your sorrow. Revelation 20 through 22, there shall be no more death or sorrow, nor crying, and there shall be no more pain. Genesis 1 through 3, cursed is the ground for your sake. Revelation 20 through 22, there shall be no more curse. Genesis 1 through 3, man's dominion is broken in the fall of the first man, Adam. Revelation 20 through 22, man's dominion is restored in the rule of the new man, Christ. Genesis 1 through 3, the first paradise is closed. Revelation 20 through 22, the new paradise is opened. Genesis 1 through 3, access to the tree of life is disinherited in Adam. Revelation 20 through 22, access to the tree of life is reinstated in Christ. Genesis 1 through 3, they were driven from God's presence. Revelation 20 through 22, they shall see his face. It's all one story. Starts in creation and moves through the covenants. So let's start with the first covenant, the Adamic covenant, the Adamic covenant. And if you were to relate this to the kingdom, because the kingdom is moving through covenants, we would say this is the kingdom purpose. The kingdom purpose. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1, 26. I think we've read this a couple times in the previous weeks. It is a foundational text for the understanding of Scripture. You see, God creates everything in six literal 24-hour days. He rests on the seventh day. But he creates on the sixth day man as the pinnacle of his creation with a particular purpose. And that purpose is a covenantal purpose. Look at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image or as our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. 
This is the foundation of God's kingdom. What does God do? He creates man as his image in his likeness. Those are terms that the, the, the audience that Moses is writing to here would have understood. You see, the Pharaoh, you think of the children of Israel in Egypt, right? The Pharaoh was said to be the image of his God, and he was also said to be, uh, or he was said to be the likeness of his God, and also the image of his God. And this defined two relationship. As, an as a likeness, that was the Pharaoh's relationship to the God. It was a son-like relationship, the relationship of a son. God himself uses this language in Genesis 5, 1 through 3. He reiterates the same language, and it talks about how man was made in the likeness of God, and then man had his own child in a likeness as a son. It's a son sort of relationship. That language of likeness is a covenant relationship like a son. So Adam, in that sense, is the original son of God. Even Luke 3 uses that terminology with relation to Adam. But then this idea of an image, the idea of an image was the Pharaoh or whatever the king's relationship to the world, to the world. See, the Pharaoh or the king was supposed to pursue the God's interest and display uh, his dominion over a realm, over a realm. And so even the Pharaoh might put images, statues of himself over uh, the land to show that I have dominion there. So what's God communicating through that in Genesis 1, 26 through 31? Man is God's son. Mankind is God's son. It's a son-like relationship and a covenantal relationship with God. But then man has a task as the image bearer. Image bearing refers more to a function, a function of representing God's aims in the world for what? To display God's glory to display God's glory. That's why they're to multiply image bearers, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with statues, with image bearers of God. For what purpose? To show that God, who reigns over all the universe, also reigns over the world through a steward king, through a, a, a steward king of Adam. That's why there's this language in Genesis 1, 26 through 32, to have dominion, to rule, there's a kingdom, a stewardship kingdom under the ultimate kingship of God, and man is to be there as a son, as an image bearer. What's he supposed to do? Genesis 2.15 says this, Then Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the, in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now the image of a God, where is the image of a God placed? It's placed in a temple. And we talked about earlier on a few weeks ago how the Garden of Eden is the first temple on earth. Not only is Adam a king, but he's also a priest. He's a priest to minister and to magnify God in the, in the world through what? First and foremost, through the Garden of Eden by working and keeping it. That language of working and keeping, working and guarding, is often used of the Levites in regard to the tabernacle. In other words, Adam is supposed to retask and retool, have dominion over the creation in order to do what? To ultimately to glorify God. This is a stewardship rule and reign under God 
to glorify God, to redirect praise and honor to the ultimate king of God. There's a problem, though. Though this command is given to Adam initially, verse 18, then Yahweh God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. You see, the commission in Genesis 1, through 31 was given to man and woman. They are both image bearers. They are both equally image bearers. The rule and the task was initially given to Adam, but he needs a complimentary helpmate, and that's where marriage comes about. Skipping down to verse 22, And the rib that Yahweh God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, that they may become one flesh And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what's going on? There's a task. Men and women, as image bearers of God, are given a task to retask creation, to rule over creation, to extend the boundaries of the Garden of Eden. For what purpose? To have an intimate relationship with God as likeness to him, and then to image him forth to the world for the purpose of God's glory to redirect praise and honor to their great God as they have an intimate, close relationship with them. Or to multi- be fruitful and multiply, to multiply image bearers on the earth so that God is, there's more statues, in a sense, honoring who God is. In this creation God rests on the seventh day, Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Why does he rest? God doesn't need to rest. He sanctifies the day. It Really, that rest punctuates the goodness, the peace, the harmony in God's created order. God is ruler over all in this beautiful creation. He's got his stewardship king right where he wants him. They're to be fruitful and multiply. They're to rule and have dominion over the earth to do so for the glory of of God. Everything is a perfect, peaceful, and harmonious relationship. What's the sign of this covenant? You ever think about that? What's the sign of the, um, the, the creation? I think the best candidate probably is marriage itself. What's the command? Be fruitful and multiply. What does marriage depict? It's an intimate covenant relationship with each other that's supposed to depict, and it does depict this throughout the pages of Scripture, the intimate covenant relationship that God has with his people. So every time there's a marriage that happens, it's supposed to point you back to the original, original creation mandate and covenant, not only with man and woman, but in their task as image bearers for the glory of God. But we know what happens, right? Genesis 3 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Remember what task God had given to Adam. Don't eat of the tree, right? Even a, in a, think of the relationship that, that Adam and Eve had with God before the fall, right? It was a perfect relationship. It was a relationship of pure grace. God didn't need to create man and woman, yet he did to have an intimate relationship with them. And yet, even in that relationship of intimate and perfect grace, there were still stipulations. There were still commands to be obeyed. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because when you do, you're essentially saying, I have the right to take on myself to decide between good and evil like God does. God's the one who defines good and evil. But in taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're essentially saying, no, we don't want to be steward kings. We want to be our own kings. We want to be our own rulers. And we want to decide good and evil for ourselves. And what's interesting here in Genesis 3, the creation order is uh, reversed, right? Man is supposed to rule over the beast of the field, but here a beast of the field, a satanically inspired serpent, goes against woman to get to man, right? Adam's supposed to have a headship over the woman, uh, and Adam's supposed to have a rule over the serpents of the field, but what happens? It's inverted, right? Satan dupes humankind, reversing the order, goes after the woman first to get to the man, to get them to disobey God. In terms of kingship, this is a coup. This is a coup, right? Man is supposed to be God's image bearer, the king under him, the steward king under him. No, we want to be our own independent rulers, not having to submit to God. And so we get the curse. Verse 14, And Yahweh God said to the serpent, so he starts with the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, that's the serpent's offspring, those who are aligned with the serpent, and her offspring. He, male, singular, offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head or crush your head, and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. We'll come back to that. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And Yahweh God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins to clothe and clothe them. And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever, Therefore Yahweh God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. 
What was the consequence of breaking this covenant, this Adamic covenant? What was it? Death. Death. A state of death and exile. Exile from God's presence. Man walked with God, had an intimate relationship with him as son, as likeness, and that was broken, and there was exile. There's pain in relationship with God, and there's pain in relationship with each other because of this. But there is hope in the middle of this, right? So the, we saw that in Genesis 3.15, key verse for the rest of Scripture. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Why is that significant? How were things before the serpent, the satanically inspired serpent, were on the scene? Perfect, peaceful, harmonious. Genesis 2, 1 through 3, restful, restful. So if the serpent is crushed, that's what Adam should have done. He should have uh, crushed the head of the serpent right then and there. And what would have happened? If that happens, there's a restoration to Edenic conditions, to Edenic rest. And you see that promise of Genesis 3.15 is the promise of the rest of the story. What are we looking for? A male offspring of the woman to destroy the serpent and restore everything back to Genesis 1 through 3 conditions, to creation conditions. That's why we have genealogies in the Bible. Did you know that? The genealogies in the scriptures are all about searching for this male offspring of the woman because when that happens, things are put right and brought back to Edenic rest, to the fulfillment of the kingdom purpose of being God's image bearers under God, perfectly enjoying God and perfectly displaying his glory to the world. And there's also other aspects of hope here, right? God covers Adam and Eve. They're in shame. They're naked. They're aware of their nakedness. They're, they're in shame. But God slaughters animals and clothes them and clothes their shame. There are elements of hope even in the midst of this darkness of this coup attempt against God in his kingdom. Now, just to give you just some bearings, right? We're spending a lot of time in the Old Testament here. We're still under this covenant. Do you know that? We are still, all mankind is still tasked to do what this calls us to do. To honor God. How do we honor God? Through multiplying image bearers. How does that work? We'll talk about that in a second. But to, to honor God with our lives. Right? That we, every person is called to do that. That is the fundamental command to man in the scriptures, a fundamental covenantal relationship. And yet, the problem is this break, this fall, has marred our ability. Sin has marred our ability to be image bearers. So how does this get solved? Well, let me fast forward you to the New Testament. How does this fulfillment work? 2 Corinthians, there's lots that could be said here, but 2 Corinthians 
3, 16 through 18, I want you to listen to this language in light of what we just read. So we do not lose heart. Oh, sorry, that's 4, 3, 16. There we go. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, the image of our ability to rule and to to honor God through our lives has been marred by the fall. But that male seed was Jesus Christ, the true image bearer of God, truly God and truly man. And what 2 Corinthians 3:16 through 18 is talking about, and you see this elsewhere in the New Testament, you talk about Jesus as the image of God. What's it talking about? It's talking about he's the one, he's the man, he's the God-man that perfectly fulfills what Adam didn't. And it's only through relationship to him that we can have our image-bearing ability restored, which is what 2 Corinthians 3.16-18 through 18 is talking about. How do we bear fruit and multiply in this time? Well, yes, through having and raising children in the fear and discipline of the Lord, but I want to take you to Colossians real quick to show you more of how this is played out. Colossians 1, 3, and I want to point out some key language. Paul is writing to the Colossian believers, and he says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you heard before, and the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and indeed in the whole world is bearing fruit and increasing. Does that sound familiar? Well, it should, because it's part of that Adamic mandate, that kingdom mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth for God's glory. How does that happen now? It happens through the proclamation of the gospel. We're still under that covenant, but the way we can fulfill it now is through knowing Christ, the last Adam, being conformed to his likeness. Remember that language in the New Testament, being conformed to the likeness, the image of Christ, because he's the true man? And do what? Bear fruit and multiply. How do we do that? Through the gospel, as Paul talks about in Colossians 1. So that's the first piece of our going back to the Old Testament now. right? I just want to flash forward and show you how does some of this work play itself out. But the kingdom foundation, the kingdom purpose is seen in the Adamic covenant in Genesis 1 through 3. What's next? The Noahic covenant. Go back to Genesis, Genesis 4. What immediately happens after the fall, the exile? 4.1, now Adam knew his wife, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and saying, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Why is she so excited? Because she's looking for the male offspring of, uh, that's going to crush the head of the serpent, the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. She's excited. And then we know what happens. Cain 
Abel comes along, Cain is a murderer. And then what happens? End of chapter 4, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. Seth means appointed. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Again, the hope is for the male serpent-crushing seed of the woman who will restore things. But people begin to understand this is going to take a while, which is why we have the first prayer mentioned in 426. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, and at that time people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Prayer is calling on God to do what he's promised to do, specifically in bringing his kingdom and bringing the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. Chapter 5, we see that the promise of death plays itself out. It's a really repetitive chapter. You read Genesis 5. So-and-so begat so-and-so, they lived so long, and then they died. So-and-so begat so-and-so, they lived so long, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. It's a, and you see this repetition, and that's intentional because it's showing that the curses of the Adamic covenant, the, dis, the, 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 the curses for disobedience have come into play through death. But then there's a break in 528 when it says this, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah. Noah means rest, saying, out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief comfort from our work and from the painful toil of our hands, which was part of that curse. So what Lamech is doing, and I think he's kind of uttering prophecy here, he's saying, through Noah, that's why he names him rest, through rest, we're going to have our full and final rest from the curse. Where did we last see rest? We saw rest in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, when God rested from his work, everything perfect, peaceful, harmony in Eden. And Lamech's thinking, through Noah, through rest, there's going to be rest. We see how that plays out a bit. Genesis 6, 5, Yahweh um, saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. But Noah, rest, found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. And what does he do? We know the story, right? God judges humanity. He wipes out humanity except for Noah, his wife, his sons, and his son wives, eight people, on an ark. God brings a worldwide flood. He gives the world a bath because it's so uh, disgustingly wicked. That's a, Genesis 6, 5 is a good verse to remember what's in our hearts. Every intention of the, our thoughts are evil continually. Now, we might not all reach that level, but we would if left to our own selves. But God has this plan. And what's interesting about this, if you think about a worldwide flood, everything's covered with waters. You remember, there's a time before when everything was covered with waters. It was Genesis 1-1, right before the creation, wasn't it? Everything was covered with waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. You remember that? Well, what's going on in the flood is a decreation. A decreation, and then a recreation. Because when those waters recede, what comes out? Dry land. That's what Noah's looking for, isn't they? He's looking for dry land. 
and is presented as a recreation. Remember the creation, dry land comes up, then God fills that with birds and animals and all of the rest of it. And that's the sort of language that's used in the flood because what God is saying is, I am decreating, but I'm also recreating. And Noah is presented as a sort of new Adam, a new Adam through which God will accomplish his kingdom purposes. You see, God hasn't given up on his kingdom purposes. He is establishing them. He is keeping them. He's preserving them through Noah. The covenant itself, the Noahic covenant itself, which, again, we are still under today, is spoken of starting in Genesis 8.20. Let's go ahead and read that. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now catch that. The flood didn't solve evil. It only kept it in check for a little while. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which is what? Exactly what was said to Adam. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, and increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, and your offspring after you, with every living creature that is with you, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy the earth. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. What does the Noahic covenant do? It provides rest, or maybe another way to say that, it provides stability. It provides stability for kingdom redemption. Notice that language, uh, sea time and harvest will never cease. There's a check on human corruption through capital punishment instituted in Genesis 9. And what's going on there? There's stability for what? Why do we need stability? We need the promise of the serpent-crushing seed to come. 
If there was no stability, if God's destroying the earth every uh, few hundred years or so, there is no stability. How would we know the promise of the serpent-crushing seed could come and set things right? Ultimately, rest does come through Noah, through his son, through his offspring, ultimately Jesus of Nazareth. There's a measure of rest in the flood. Things are sort of reset And there's a measure of rest. Human corruption was dealt with for a time, at least kept in check, sort of. But there's full and final rest promised through Noah. So, Noahic covenant, stability. Stability for God's promises to come. What's the sign of the covenant? The sign of the covenant is the rainbow. The idea of the rainbow is God's war bow. God's war bows hung up in the clouds so that he will not devastate the earth again with a flood. We, we deserve it, and yet by grace, he has hung his war bow up in the cloud. Next time you think you see a rainbow, you should, you should think about these verses, and you should think of God actively remembering his covenant to humanity to not destroy us, so that the full final fulfillment of being image bearers, the kingdom purpose, that was expressed in Genesis 1 through 3, can come, and it can come through Jesus. God is actively, when he sees that, he doesn't forget, right? But when he sees the rainbow, he is actively remembering his promises to us and actively remembering things will be set right, things will be brought back to Edenic rest. Edenic rest. That's the, Noahic, the, the, Abraham, the Adamic covenant, established kingdom purposes. The Noahic covenant gives stability for the full and final establishment of kingdom purposes. But you can see how these things fit together. And that's how the rest of the storyline of Scripture goes. It's building on this foundation until we get to the Gospels and to Matthew. What are you supposed to do with this? What are you supposed to do with this? On one part, it's just information, right? You need to understand these things because you need to understand how is Scripture put together? How is the storyline going? But it's not mere understanding. It's standing in awe of God. The God who created man. The God who is at work in redeeming man. The God who has created an epic story of which he has swept us up into by grace. Everything he has done is by sheer grace. Creating an Adam and Eve, sheer grace. Having a plan of redemption, sheer grace. Saving us and bringing us into union with the last Adam, with Jesus Christ, sheer grace. But as you see this storyline unfold, you should stand in awe of God. You should just worship and exult. And it's like, that is amazing because what God is doing. Here's another way you can think about this. You ever, um, you ever long, have a longing for rest, for comfort? Like every day, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the rhythm of life, right? We work, and our work is frustrating often because of the curse of um, the Adamic covenant, because of the fall. And we want, if I, just, if I just had a vacation, if I just had this, if I just had that, if I could just sleep a little bit longer, uh, if I could 
um, you, you know, let me just look at Facebook a little bit more, right? Even those things, we're looking for rest, aren't we? If I can just watch, you're, you're just seeking for rest and for comfort. Well, what is that from? It's from the fall. What are you supposed to do with that, especially as one who is in Christ? Well, you need to remember why it's there, why you have that longing, and you need to look forward. There is no rest and comfort this in this life. There are good gifts that God gives us that we can enjoy. Don't get me wrong. We should enjoy those things. But the full and final rest that God is pointing us to is Edenic rest, the rest that he has promised to restore through Jesus, through the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. And so what do you do with that? You, you look to God for strength and for rest in his timing, you, and you guard your heart because our hearts are sinful, and they will look for things to wrongly find rest in apart from God, apart from the future So guard your heart when you wrongly grab for things that you want to give you immediate rest and comfort and you long for and you look for the final and full future rest that God will bring. God is establishing his kingdom through covenants. We've seen the foundation of that today. Let's go ahead and pray and give thanks to our great God. God, you're... Your storyline, your, your plan is glorious, and it's big, and it's epic, and we can't always comprehend it. Lord, help us to understand more for the purpose, not just of understanding a few things, but understanding how great and how awesome you are. Thank you for your mercy towards us. Lord, we are sinners. We know that left to our own devices... We would only set our minds on evil continually, and yet you've redeemed us in Christ. You are in that process of redeeming us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've given to us to to make us a new creation. We look forward to you coming again, Lord Jesus, and reigning as the the true Adam, and us as your image bearers and part of that kingdom. Lord, we long for that. We long for perfect justice. We long for perfect peace and rest. Help us to continue to long for that and to rely upon you, to be patient, and to trust you for your timing. Thank you for sending Jesus, and we thank you for the resurrection that gives us hope that these things, you're not done. You've you've sent Christ once. You will send him again. And we pray, as you've instructed us, may your kingdom come. Please bring it, we ask. And yet we would also ask that you would tarry to sweep more kingdom citizens through your gospel. Help us to bear fruit and to multiply through the proclamation of the gospel in our own area, in our own time. We ask for these things. We praise your great and awesome name. In Jesus' name, amen.